All right, well, thank you, Peter, and uh, good morning, Mercy Hill. My name's Nick. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, if I haven't met you, sure wish I could get a chance to meet you sometime. Uh, in fact, if you do fill out the connection card, um, you'll see there is a link there where uh, if you're interested in meeting with a pastor or you're interested in connecting, uh, I think those sorts of things we're fine to do uh, now, whether that's via Zoom, the phone, or even for a walk or hike. So uh, let me know. I'd love to meet you if I haven't already. But uh, I did just want to piggyback on what Peter said. Uh, definitely would encourage you to check out the after party um, today, beginning again immediately after the service. It is going to be, I think, a special time to process and think through the stuff we've been seeing going down around us these days. Tolu uh, brings a lot of insight and wisdom. I kind of prepared some questions uh, that we'll bring to him and maybe we'll give a chance for, to throw it open to any who's in the room as well just to kind of ask uh, uh, his uh, experience, guidance from scripture and, and personal experience just being an African-American here uh, and in our church, kind of how can we uh, process these things together? How can we as a church uh, step forward and be a cause for the gospel and for good and for racial justice and things in this day. So I think you don't want to miss it. Uh, even if you do want to leave your screen blacked out, you don't have to turn your video camera on if you don't want and just kind of tune in. Uh, I have a feeling you'll be uh, blessed by it. Uh, and I will also say with regard to the directory, if I could just encourage you um, you know, if you either wanted to be in that or you uh, are currently in the directory and things, our heart there is simply, listen, let's, especially in this time where we're isolated, I mean, help me shepherd the church by going through the directory yourself and praying through the people, praying for the people, uh, uh, interceding on behalf of those that are there, and maybe even shooting a text or uh, an encouragement or, or, or a telephone call just to see how people are doing. Uh, I think it'd be awesome if we started really shouldering the one another's of scripture, bearing one another's burdens, reaching out to one another in that way. I think it would be great. And so I just would encourage you, uh, really see it not just as a document that's static and just kind of sits in your shelf or your computer somewhere, but something that we engage and we say, listen, these are the people God is knitting my heart together with. These are the people that I want to care for. Uh, these are the people that I'm called to kind of shoulder burdens and reach out and, 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 and serve. So I'd encourage you to uh, take that seriously um, and let's do that together. Now, uh, I'm going to read uh, from uh, God's Word here before I kind of dive into the content for this morning, um, set the stage with the text actually that we read uh, last time I was up, which was before Father's Day. Uh, Mike Griego did a wonderful job last week. We're wrapping back around to part two of what I began uh, two weeks ago. We're in Revelation 5, 1 through 10. Again, this really just sets the stage and the tone for what I'm going to talk about. We're not going to deal with with this text uh, piece by piece like I normally would, but still, let's read it. Revelation 5, 1 through 10. Read it, pray, and then we'll get going. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scrolls and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered 
so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Let's pray. We've got right now even just at the outset here, we ask for your help. We know that if you don't grant insight, if you don't grant ears to hear, we don't hear. We've got all sorts of other things chattering about in our minds, all sorts of static and noise, distracted by countless things, worries, anxieties, desires, longings all clamoring for our attention in these moments. And right now, Holy Spirit, we're praying that you would calm all of that. That you would tune us in to what you would say to our church, what you would say to your people. God, I pray that somehow, (laughs) by grace, you would use a, a sinful man like me to be your mouthpiece. We find ourselves in a day and age that desperately needs truth to break through with clarity, conviction. I pray that you would let that be what takes place this morning as we gather around your word together. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Okay. I mentioned last time that uh, this really has, at least as far as my life is concerned, uh, it's been the most severe time of unrest and upheaval that I've ever experienced. And I I do imagine that's probably the case for uh, you as well. And, um, you know, it's been this kind of crazy layering one trial upon the other, and not just personal trial, but, but national and even global trials, right? And so we're dealing with COVID-19 and this global pandemic when in the midst of that, on top of that, we're just kind of thrown uh, into this whole George Floyd thing and the protests and the, the racial injustice and all this tension now that our nation and again, even the world is experiencing. And it is, it's overwhelming. It is overwhelming. And I have... Um, tried, you know, in weeks past to uh, specifically speak into that first issue, the pandemic and things, as I was doing the Do Not Be Afraid series. And then it just occurred to me, uh, man, as we're kind of coming through all this stuff that's going on uh, in the streets right now and the protests, that we needed to also uh, uh, step into some discussion uh, biblically about that stuff as well. 
And so last time I began uh, the first part really of this message we're gonna wrap around and, and complete this morning. Um, the title was this, uh, Every Tribe, Tongue, People, and Nation, The Issue of Race and the Gospel of Grace. My goal with this, uh, these two messages really is to kind of try to help us regain our balance in these dizzying days. I mean, we get knocked off balance by all the stuff that's going on, and uh, we come to God's word, uh, we, we rely on God's spirit to center us, to, to calm us, to reorient us, to help us regain our footing so that we can be uh, agents of peace and, and, and agents of grace in a time of unrest. Um, part one of uh, this little mini-series, you might call it, uh, really all I did was um, deal with uh, what I called learning the story. Learning the story. This was when, if you uh, were able to tune into that, you'll recall perhaps, I basically took the concept of race, uh, the theme of race, if you will, and kind of ran it through the, really the four main chapters of the storyline of, of, of scripture, the biblical narrative. Uh, so we ran it through those four chapters of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, and just kind of reflected together a little bit about what we learned. But largely what I was doing there um, was just trying to give us some biblical, theological uh, kind of grounding. I wanted us to see God's heart as it pertains to race and how the gospel comes in and creation and sin and all this stuff mixes up around that theme. And I said what I was gonna do now for part two is, is come back with a lot more practical stuff to consider. So we're moving from this idea of learning the story to now living in step. The idea is I don't just wanna know the gospel, I don't just wanna know the biblical worldview as it pertains to race, I wanna know what it means to live in step with that story, to live in step with the gospel. The phrase living in step, um, really I borrowed it from Paul actually in Galatians 2.14 and I brought this out last time but he's, he's confronting Peter the other, you know, one of the other apostles who is kind of, uh, Peter at the time was kind of retreating from his mission and, and, and kind of aborting on the ministry of the gospel because he's starting to pull back from the Gentiles and he's just hanging out with his Jewish bros. He's just hanging out with his, with his ethno kind of group and he's not wanting to, you know, let the outsider have a space at the table. And Paul rolls in on him and he says, listen, Peter, you cannot do this. Your conduct, this is Galatians 2.14, is not in step with the truth of the gospel. You, you may know the gospel, Peter. I know you do. You're saved by it just like I am. By grace, you know the gospel that, that, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and through Jesus, anyone who may come who would repent and, and receive him can come and there's space for them around the table. And Peter, you're not living in step with that reality. So it's one thing to learn the story. Peter knew it all too well, but it's another thing to actually live in step with it, and that's what this morning is gonna be 
all about. And to do this, uh, really what I'm going to do, I, I, I'm just going to kind of run back through those four main chapters of the biblical storyline, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, and I'm going to pause on each one, kind of maybe sum up what we saw last time, theologically, biblically, and then I'm going to start to just spiral out implications for us and what it might look like to live in step with that reality. What this teaches us about how we ought to uh, behave and what we ought to do and feel and say and things in this uh, current day of unrest and racial tension. Um, So let me, I guess, just get right to it. Let's begin with chapter one, creation. Chapter one. Creation. Now, just in sum, uh, from last time, you remember what we saw here. It was simply this idea that God, who is himself three persons in one, Father, Son, Spirit, creates on, on, on uh, you know, in the first chapter of Genesis there, creates man in his image, male and female in his image. The idea here was that just as God is this um, diverse and yet united being, so too humanity is created by him in his image to be diverse, male, female, what have you, and yet still united. Um, What we came to understand from this and the reality that all people are created in God's image is that regardless of gender, color, religion, socioeconomic status, etc. <laughs> we are all inherently valuable, equally dignified, worthy of respect, and even of honor. That's just baseline biblical anthropology. As we look at creation, we realize that to be made in the image of God means that we are all equally valuable and inherently Uh, dignified and worthy of respect and things. So let's tease out now what it might mean to live in step with this truth. Implication number one. I'll give you just, I think on this one, three. I think this one, I actually have the most. I'll just kind of go mainly two uh, in each of these different chapters and then we'll just kind of close out the last one with a a quick final thought. But let me get get you into this idea of living in step with this reality of creation and being created in the image of God. Implication number one, we remember that all people matter to God. Now, hang with me on this because I think this is an important starting point and I know it's a little bit redundant to what I just said, but I want to linger. We remember, if, if, if we kind of understand that creation means all people have been created in the image of God, then, then one of the ways we can live in step with this is we remember that all people, including ourselves, matter greatly to God. And I, I thought, man, this is a good place to start, and, it, and it's perhaps especially uh, poignant uh, for uh, black Americans right now, especially given the, the history of oppression and degradation in our country, but not just kind of in our you know, culture out there, but actually even in the American church. If you know your history, it's embarrassing how the church was complicit in uh, some of the racism and stuff that we see and how they didn't use their Bibles always to kind of come against it. Sometimes they use their Bibles to promote slavery and racial injustice, to, to promulgate that idea. And so I imagine uh, 
that for the, the, the African American in our country, in our churches, there's this lingering sense, just like, man, do I matter? Am I always going to kind of be this second-class citizen? Will I always be in the margins? Am I valuable, respectable, dignified, loved? Do I matter? My country and my church have seemed through the years to kind of stutter on the issue. But then here's what this reality of being created in the image of God speaks to us. God has never stuttered with regard to this question, do I matter? God has never stuttered. It has always been a resounding, yes, of course you do. That's what it means to be made in God's image. He didn't give his image to the beast or the bird, to the fish or the fowl. He put his image upon man. And in so doing, he ascribed us with such dignity and value. And he says, you matter to me. I mentioned David uh, in Psalm 8 last time reflecting on this creational reality and I don't have time to read it all again but he gets what I'm after here especially in verses 3 and 4 of that psalm where he says this, when I look at, at the heavens, or I'm sorry, at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the son of man that you care for him. Do you hear what he's saying? He's looking out at the splendor and the majesty of creation and he's going, no way. How can it be that the God who made all of this actually sets humanity up over top of it? And beyond that, how can it be that you have actually specially set men and women apart to be the honored recipient of, 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 of your love and your care? God, it is too much to take in. You see, he understands that by virtue of creation, God is saying that you matter a lot to me. I really value you. I will care for you in a way that I'm not caring for, for anything else in creation. Jesus didn't die for the birds. He didn't die for the, the monkeys. He died for you and I. It's amazing. We matter to God. Whatever else it means uh, or whatever else um, it implies when we talk about us being created in the image of God, certainly it at least means this, we matter to him. And that's helpful for us to remember even as we start. Now, implication number two, as we kind of live in step with this reality, uh, in, I think what will happen is, is we will then repudiate racism wherever it is found. So because all people matter equally to God, it ought to be that they all matter equally to me right? Uh, there is no place for racism in the church, and it is part of our duty as followers of Christ to see to it that we push against it wherever it's found, whether in the church, in the city, in the nation, in the world, because all people matter to God, created in his image. That's what it means. We won't stand for 
racism. Now, we'll talk about this uh, more as we go along, but I thought it's important to note um, up front here with connection to this creation piece and the what's theologically been termed the imago Dei or the image of God because actually I wonder if you know that one of the main tenets that kind of undergirded and fueled the, the civil rights movement, especially as it was spearheaded by Martin Luther King Jr., was just this very principle. This sense that, listen, God has created all men in his image, and therefore they have inherent dignity, value, worth, and they are deserving of respect and equal rights and all of these things. And so that was part of the engine underneath uh, that kind of fueled the civil rights movement. It was this very concept of man being created in the image of God. When you really get that, you won't stand for racism in any of its forms. You see how it attacks the foundations of reality, of creation as God designed it. Now, if you'll allow me a tangent here just for a moment, I'll try to be brief on this, but I just thought this was, this was pretty profound. Um, I've actually found that the, the uproar in recent days uh, with all these protests and things on the streets, it's actually quite a, a powerful apologetic or defense of the biblical worldview on this point. And let me, let me show you what I mean. Um, when people all around our city and country march and protest and petition for justice and human rights and equality, regardless of whatever their religious affiliation may be, regardless of whether they're even aware of it or not, they are actually, in fact, stepping out into the world of the Bible upon the foundation of the biblical story. They may not say that, they may not even realize it, but that's actually what they are doing. The only worldview within which this marching and protesting makes any sense is the one presented to us in the scriptures. So think about this with me. If I'm losing you, hopefully I'll, I'll help you catch up. We live in a secular, atheistic uh, society, especially here in the Bay Area, by and large, right? And we live in a culture that has bought hook, line, and sinker what is in our uh, science you know, textbooks that we all kind of evolved from monkeys, and that is what it is. There is no, what this means is, there is no, in this worldview promulgated by our culture, there is no transcendent reality. There is no God. There is no absolute truth. There is no ethical norm or standard or right or wrong. There is none of those things. It's all relative and subjective. It's all here and now and nothing above it, nothing outside of it. And here's what you've got to understand. In a worldview without God, without absolute truth, without ethical norms, right or wrong, these marches, these protests are utterly meaningless. They, 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 they don't make any sense. They don't work. You can't march and protest in that worldview at least, at least not in a meaningful way. In an evolutionary worldview, uh, here's what we need to see. Why would racism and oppression and marginalization be wrong? Now bear with me, I'm, I'm just trying to, 
Maybe be a little scandalous here. Why would it be wrong? I mean, isn't this just the strong eating the weak? Isn't this just the survival of the fittest? And we're pushing and we're pulling and we're doing exactly what Darwin said we do. We gotta survive and and, one person against another and all of these things. Why would this be wrong? We couldn't say it's wrong. We might not like it, but it isn't wrong, technically. In fact, here's what I need you to understand. The evolutionary worldview, far from repudiating racism, actually serves to encourage and undergird it. It actually engenders racism. So one scholar writes, even of Darwin himself, he was convinced that, uh, and I quote here, that evolution was progressive and that the white races, especially the Europeans, were evolutionarily more advanced than the black races. And the late Harvard professor, Stephen Jay Gould, said this, biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1859, which was the year Darwin's On the Origin of Species was published, but they increased, he says, by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory. <laughs> So the evolutionary worldview, which most in our culture have bought hook, line, and sinker, actually doesn't support uh, 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 the, the repudiation of racism. It supports the, and encourages racism. It actually engenders and undergirds it in some ways. And here's what I'm saying with, with all of this then. What we see on the streets cannot be accounted for by the worldview that most people would claim to believe with their lips. And what it actually does is evidences the fact that deep in our souls, deep in our bones, in our guts, in our heart of hearts, we know there's not just relative wrong and and subjective truth. There are things that are right, absolutely, and wrong, objectively, and we will stand for those things. You see, deep within our bones, even though we may deny it with our lips, we understand that there is inherent dignity that's been ascribed to man, and we all are deserving of, of, of equal treatment. Justice. We know wrong when we see it. And we march out because we feel it. But what we may not realize is that we march out into the world of the Bible. The, the worldview that the scriptures present is the only worldview that can make sense of it. You've been created in God's image. That's why everything in you says to treat an image bearer like this is wrong and we will not stand for it. So when we petition and march, we are giving witness to the fact that whether we admit it or not, we are living in the world God has made and we are longing for the world only Christ can bring. It's amazing. It's amazing. I just read an article, a pretty scholarly article, talking about Martin Luther King, King Jr. and how this idea of the Imago Dei and things fueled that the civil rights movement for him and stuff and how the current movement now doesn't have that underpinnings and so they're not gonna have the engine to get there to finish the vision that uh, MLK and, and, and really before him obviously God uh, has. That we need this sense of, 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 of creation 
being made in God's image to support uh, what we are attempting when we move towards equality and justice for all men. Implication number three under this idea of creation and being created in God's image, uh, we resist the temptation to dehumanize those we disagree with. Now, I'll have to try to be quick here. But if we understand that all human beings have been created in the image of God, then we will resist the temptation to dehumanize those we disagree with. That's what it would look like to walk in step with this truth. It will stop talking to people the way that we often do. I mean, you've seen it, no doubt, in the news. If you kind of, I try, and I recommend this practice, I try to watch different news stations so that I don't just fall victim to the vitriol of one group because they're all like picking sides on these various issues going on in our culture right now and then lobbing grenades over the wall that they've built and no one is interested in meaningful uh, dialogue and actually listening and treating other people like human beings. We, we, we demonize, we villainize, we dehumanize and then we feel no shame, no regret for just throwing them under the bus because they're not people anymore anyways. They're just opponents to be outdone. They're not human beings to be respected, loved, listened to. And so people who understand this creational piece of the biblical narrative won't engage in that sort of thing. They know that to talk like that is out of step with the truths of the gospel. It's not living in step with it at all. We start to move towards people, whether you know, they're in our political camp or they're in our whatever little group we like to define ourselves with or not. We're ready to listen to them. We're ready to dialogue. We respect and we love. What, one thing I did want to bring out here just before I move on is I think it's amazing because James in his epistle actually uh, addresses this issue of how we talk to one another. <laughs> the tongue, and one of the things that he'll do to ground our understanding or, or, or to, to make his case that we ought not to talk the way we are is he grounds it in this idea of the Imago Dei. Listen to this. This is James 3, 9, and 10. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Here he says, who are made in the likeness of God. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. He said, listen, okay, something is off. If you're talking to other image bearers like this, whether on Facebook or on Twitter or, you know, uh, across the fence or, or whatever it may be, on the other side of the line at protests or whatever it is, you can't talk to an image bearer of God like that and then march into church on Sunday and sing hallelujah to the one in whose image they've been made. There's a disconnect there. And James is saying it ought not to be so. If we have no love for those made in his image, we ought not to think we have genuine love for the one in whose image they've been made. You see, this reality that all people have been created in the image of God would lead us to set aside our, 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 our snarky rhetoric, actually listen, engage. Now, at the end of the day, you may still hold your various opinions, right? You may even be more firm in your opinions that you started with, but my guess is if you've truly listened and you've truly dialogued with other people and treated them like human beings, you will come away with less of a caricature and you'll see a little bit more 
why they feel the way they feel, what they're doing, why they're doing what they're doing. You'll see them a little bit more human. All right, we better get moving. Chapter two now, chapter two, um, the fall. So now we move into the, the, the uh, second chapter of the biblical storyline, and we're gonna consider this idea of the fall and what it looks like to live in step with the reality that comes out here. So just to summarize what we saw biblically last time, uh, we, this is where we come to Genesis 3, and we realize that uh, men fall into sin at this point, and we start to kind of push away from God and push away from one another. There's this darkness that starts to coil up in the heart of man and choke out any of uh, the sort of love and things that, that God would have wanted to kind of bring out. It starts to turn into self-centered hate and egoism and ultimately then ethnocentrism and all this other stuff. So Adam pushes back against Eve. Cain pushes back against Abel. And then in Babel, we see they're momentarily united, right? But then things go awry and humanity is sprawled throughout the earth. And that's where we, we understand that you know human beings start to take on different uh, cultural developments, different physical characteristics, different languages and that sort of thing and hence begins the history of nation against nation, people group fighting against people group. The history of division and war and strife and enmity. That's what we learn when we consider the fall. Speaks into reality. We understand, okay, wow, Races are divided and there's something in the human heart. It's nasty. So what does it mean then to live in step with this reality? I'll give us just two implications here. Implication number one, we are quick to repent. If we understand biblically that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and I'm in that number, if we understand that man, at least in his original nature, is fallen and twisted, Uh, well, here's what's gonna happen. We should be, at least, as Christians, at least, quick to repent. Because we understand that one of the ways that fallen nature manifests itself is actually by bobbing and weaving, dodging and blaming other people. And we're gonna say, enough of that. I know I'm a sinner. Why am I trying to prove to you I'm not? Let me ask God, hey, like, like David does in Psalm 139, search me, know me, See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I'm sure there's stuff in here, God. Show me what it is. In sin, my mother conceived me. I know there's gonna be some stuff. I'm not offended when you point it out. I'm not surprised when you point it out. I'm saying, God, help me grow. Show me so that I can repent and truly start to look more like you. Lord, renew me in the image that's been marred. Now, I think here, especially of my white brothers and sisters in the church and how, you know, you see some of these things being thrown out on the news or, or maybe from friends and stuff about racism and systemic racism and all of these things, and maybe your initial response is to quickly dismiss your own part in it and, and maybe even celebrate the fact that you're not like all those others, right? 
And so we may congratulate ourselves almost by the fact that, hey, listen, I'm good. I'm not a racist. I've never worn a Klan hood. I've never owned a slave. I have some friends that are black. I am not a racist. This doesn't pertain to me. This pertains to those white supremacy wackos. That's not me. Thank you, Lord. Whew. And it may be true that hopefully, <laughs> I pray you and I are not uh, engaged in any of that sickness in that degree that may be true that we're not you know, active you know, racists or something, but it might also be true that we're not actively anti-racist either. They were not actively pursuing the hurting or trying to stop. It might also be true that if we open up ourselves to the light of God and say, search me, we're going to find some partiality in there. Might not look like the hardcore stuff in your textbooks that you think of when you think of racism, but maybe there is some of that prejudice. Or maybe there is a little bit of that kind of discomfort when someone different from you rolls into the party. Just kind of ignore, kind of step back and monitor the situation because I just don't know. Maybe God starts to shine a little bit on that. Listen, we're not surprised when we see this sort of stuff in our hearts. We kind of expect there to be cockroaches scattering when the light comes in. So we're quick to repent. We know we do it in the light of the cross. We say, sorry, God, help me. That would be one way we might live in step with the truth, the reality presented to us in about the fall. Another implication I would bring forth would be this. We appreciate the extent of the problem. We appreciate the extent of the problem. When you get the idea that man is fallen in his very nature, that racism isn't just a black-white issue, an American issue, but it's actually been with humanity since Genesis 3, well, you have a little more appreciation for the extent of the problem. You know it runs deep. It runs way deep. And you understand, okay, we're not just going to fix it with a little more education and a little more legislation. That stuff can certainly help. And we'll maybe talk about that momentarily, but there's just so much more to it. I was reminded of something I read in John Stott's classic work, Basic Christianity. Hear what he has to say here. The history of the last hundred years or so has convinced many people that the problem of evil is located in man himself, not merely in his society. In the 19th century, a liberal optimism flourished. It was then widely believed that human nature was fundamentally good, that evil was largely caused by ignorance and bad housing, and that education and social reform would enable men to live together in happiness and goodwill. But this illusion has been shattered by the hard facts of history. Educational opportunities have spread rapidly in the Western world, and many welfare states have been created, yet the atrocities which accompanied both world wars, the subsequent international conflicts, the continuance of political oppression and racial discrimination, and the general increase of violence and crime have forced thoughtful people to acknowledge the existence in every man of a hard core of selfishness. In other words, the problem fundamentally at its deepest is not out there somewhere. It's in here. 
We've thought through the years, especially after the Enlightenment, and then even with Darwin's evolutionary theory that we're just getting better. <laughs> we're just getting better. We just need to get a few of these little educational or legislation sort of pieces together, and then humanity's going to rise to utopia or whatever it may be. And then we watched that vision, those ideals, pummeled by World War I and World War II and all these other things, and slowly we realized, man, there is something sick in the heart of man. Technolo technological advancements don't help. In fact, all it does is give us new ways of hurting each other. <laughs> we realize the problem is much deeper. What we need most is not more education or more legislation. What we need most is regeneration. We need to be born again by the Spirit of God. We need to be put back together by the Son. Comes into this broken house and starts tidying up the stuff that's wrong in my heart, dusting out the cobwebs and things, helping me see right again. The change has to happen here. Now, to be clear, this is not to say that we don't concern ourselves with, with politics or education or, 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 or you know, legislation and the law. We absolutely do and we should. We should try to do our best to see that the good and the true is promoted in our society as best as we can. But what this means is that we understand those things' limitations. We understand what they can do and we understand what they can't do. We don't put an inordinate amount of hope in those things. With education and law, we may be able to curb and harness the evil in our fallen nature, but only the gospel of Jesus Christ can change the heart. And so it's not an either-or issue. It's a both-and issue with emphasis on preach the gospel, man's only real hope of transformation. Now, if I could just say uh, one quick thing, and um, perhaps it's risky, but I suppose I don't care. Hopefully it's helpful. Um, uh, if I could just say one quick thing here with regard to the whole issue of, of police uh, right now, because I think the, the biblical reality of the fall and the sinful nature of man has something to speak into this issue as we're you know, talking about what it may mean, uh, what, what the right way forward would be with race and police and some of this tension. Uh, let me bring out two truths very quickly here, as quickly as I can. Um, let me bring out two things with regard to this. On the one hand, because of the reality that we are all sinners by nature, hear me now, we need the police. <laughs> we need it. We need guys to keep us in line. If you loosen the leash, we will go as far as you let us go. That's what we learn when we read the scriptures. That's what's in the heart of man. When we appreciate the extent of the problem, we don't think let us off the hook and we're all going to be great. No, we've seen enough. You let the leash out, and we go as far as you let us in our selfishness and in our sin. You don't need much to prove this to you. All you have to do is just pay attention to what happens the next time you're driving down the freeway. I mean, let me ask you the question. Maybe I'm just going to incriminate myself. But you're going 15 miles per hour over the speed limit. Maybe you're even going 20 if you're really late, like I often am. And maybe because you're late, you're going to be texting as you're driving that friend that's waiting on you. And you've got all these things going on. And then up behind you, you see rolling a cop car. And what happens? 
Well, first, you almost have a mini panic attack because you know the law is coming. And then second, you try to figure out how you can look good and clean yourself up. So you kind of, you don't slam on the brakes because that'd be too obvious. You kind of tap on those brakes and slow it down so hopefully this little radar didn't get you before in time and you didn't bring any, you know, uh, any uh, focus onto your vehicle. Just kind of lightly slow things down and you toss your phone off to the side. And then when he drives by, you give him a little wave and act like you're just this model citizen. And then when he gets off that off ramp, you're back at it, right? Well, what is that? That, that? that is a reason why we actually, we're getting evidence there why we need police. You see, we're gonna push in selfishness. It's about me and getting where I need to go and, 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 and we're gonna be unsafe and put other people in danger to get what we want and police are there to help. At least that's what they should be there to do. Paul says this in Romans 13, verses three and four. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So what was I feeling in those moments as the police comes by? Well, I'm feeling that fear Paul's talking about because the one who's the servant of God who's come to do good is gonna find me out who was doing wrong. And Paul is saying, listen, uh, the idea of rulers, authorities, police, and things, this is those who bear the sword. This is God's idea in response to sin. So on the one hand, we need police. That's what the biblical reality of the fall would tell us. But we wrap around, and the second thing, on the other hand, here's what we need to uh, realize as well. Not only do we need police, but because even the police are sinners by nature, the police need accountability. You see how this works together? We need police because we're sinners, but police need accountability because we're sinners. And so it's not wrong. In fact, it's very good and just and equitable to put in structures and policies and things that will keep these men that bear the sword or bear the firearm accountable. It's important. And insofar as we can help and do that, we should. Because men weren't created. Men can't handle in their sin uh, the, the sort of power and authority that comes with that. Will they give an account one day to God for whether they did good or bad with those things? Yes, they will. But we also hope that we can have them give an account to us and to others. We can kind of put some things in place to keep uh, men from hurting the very people they're called to protect. We need them and yet they also need accountability. So they're a blessing to God from us, and yet we also have to understand, again, the limits and things, and put proper governors and, and, and parameters around it. And I think that's what we learn when we consider uh, chapter two in the fall, and these are some things might look like to walk in step or to live in step with it. Now, chapter number three, redemption, redemption. Uh, here is where, just kind of quick summary, we remember that God does not leave us in our sin. 
but instead he comes after us. It's, it's, it's as if in Genesis 12, immediately following Babel, he, he kind of begins this cosmic rescue mission. I mean, really, I could say Genesis 3, right after the fall, he already is promising the coming redeemer. So this cosmic rescue mission begins, and, and it culminates really in the arrival of Jesus Christ. And through Jesus, through his, his life, his death, his resurrection, you and I are brought back to God and we're actually consequently brought back into to relationship, reconciled relationship with other human beings. This is what I mean in our mission statement when we say, listen, Mercy Hill exists to restore us to God and neighbor. You see, it's not just restoring us to God through the gospel, but the gospel actually brings us back to one another as well. And he does this through Christ. That Jesus comes and he lives the life we should have lived. He dies the death we should have died. And he rises again from the dead, ascends to the Father, pours out his spirit upon us so that you and I can be born again, changed from within now. Brought back to God, kid and his family, brought back to one another. Now, what does it mean to live in step with the reality of redemption and what we learn of God here? I'll just give you a couple implications. Implication number one, we step towards the suffering of others, not away from it. So if we understand this idea of redemption and what God has done for us in Christ, what this means to live in step with it ourselves, it'll mean we step towards the suffering of others, not away from it. There's a sort of trajectory that the gospel sets in motion in the Christian man. Uh, Maybe prior to Christ, we would push away, we would step back from, we would uh, move uh, away and try to avoid those who are suffering or needy or whatever because their suffering may spill over onto us and, and affect my comfort level, right? But when Christ gets a hold of our heart and we contemplate the one who came down and suffered in our place for us, man, that does something here. And it starts to move us outward now. When Christ comes in, the people go out. (laughs) And there's love and there's empathy and there's compassion now where there was only selfishness before. One of my favorite examples of this trajectory idea and this idea of stepping towards the suffering and not away from it uh, comes actually in Galatians 2 where Paul is talking about how, and we got to remember, Paul was that you know, Pharisee of Pharisees, uh, self-righteous, defined himself against, you know, over and against everyone else. Jesus gets a hold of his life, sets him on a mission to go bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And in Galatians, Paul is saying, you know, after some time ministering and bringing the gospel to all these Gentiles, I realize I kind of want to check up with the other apostles, those guys who were apostles before me, and make sure I'm not running in vain. Make sure my, go- our, my gospel matches theirs. And so in Galatians, he shows up uh, and he's talking about this time with these guys and he says this in verse nine of, of Galatians two. When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised only, and here's what I wanted you to hear, they asked us to remember the poor. 
the very thing I was eager to do. (laughs) Go in your ministry. Go bring the gospel. But remember the poor, and Paul says, how could I forget them? That's what I'm longing to do. I'm eager to get to where the needy are and care for them. You see how this shifts, how the heart shifts. It's incredible. Paul used to go and, 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 and stone people in the church, and now he's moving towards them with compassion and empathy. And you also see, listen, it's nice to get the doctrine right. Okay, good, we perceive you have the gospel and God's grace has been given to you and you have a mission and a ministry. Now go and preach the gospel and do the doctrine thing. That is essential, as I've been saying, but right doctrine will always lead to right action. Therefore, you preach a God who so loved the world that he came down in his son and gave his life for sinners like you and I, therefore you go and do likewise. Lay down your life in love for the weak and the lowly and the poor and the broken and the sinner. So in our case, it would look like not pushing away from the situations that we're seeing in the news or our, 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 our black friends or whatever it may be who, who need a safe space to talk but we're too uncomfortable with it and it's making us feel weird as white you know, Americans or whatever. It's like, no. I mean, we move towards those scenarios. We move towards the hurting. And right now, in our context, it's African Americans. Some even in our church who need us to love waiting for us to move towards, waiting for us not just to uh, uh, talk about the gospel, but to show it in the way that we care, the way that we listen to their stories, we hear their cries, we labor for their well-being, we lobby for their justice, the way that we don't just talk about God's love, but we get busy loving. I appreciate what Charlie Dates says on this point in a sermon <laughs> he preached entitled The Most Segregated Hour in America, Overcoming Divisions to Pursue MLK's Vision of Racial Harmony. Here's what he writes. Here's what he, what he said. The Bible recognizes no significant distinction between personal orthodoxy and corporate orthopraxis. To be a person of orthodox faith is to at the same time be a person of right action towards one's fellow man. The Christian has an obligation to call out wickedness where it exists, to challenge systems of injustice where they reign, and to love mercy and justice on a corporate and societal level. Amen and amen. My time is waning, so I better move. Implication number two with this idea of of redemption and things, living in step with it. We leave no room for hatred in our hearts. If we've truly been moved by the gospel, there will be no room for bitterness or hatred in our hearts. Here now I obviously have, especially in mind, uh, perhaps African Americans and any of us who have really jumped in support of what's going on and wanting to stand uh, in the gap for the injustice that we see. Listen, when we see videos like the one we did with George Floyd and that uh, insane murder 
wonder. Uh, it's hard not to uh, start to let hate reign in your heart as you consider what these people have done. And yet we need to hear the words of Martin Luther King Jr. on this. Here's what he says. Always be sure that you struggle with Christian methods and Christian weapons, never succumb to the temptation of becoming bitter as you press on for justice. Be sure to move with dignity and discipline using only the weapon of love. Let no man pull you so low as to hate him. In your struggle for justice, let your oppressor know that you are not attempting to defeat or humiliate him or even to pay him back for injustices that he has heaped upon you. I still believe that love, he says, is the most durable power in the world. This principle stands at the center of the cosmos. As John says, God is love. He who loves is a participant in the being of God. He who hates does not know God. Now, Martin Luther King Jr., you don't need me to remind you, is a man who knows oppression and knows injustice. And has, it, has seen more of that in probably one day of his life than I may ever see in my entire life. And yet here he stands in the pulpit of a church in Birmingham, I think maybe Montgomery, Alabama, I can't remember, somewhere in Alabama saying, no, we are not going to give in to bitterness and, and rage and violence and hate. We are instead going to give ourselves to durable, powerful love. And you want to say, how? How is he going to stand there and say that, seeing what he sees, knowing what he knows, experiencing what he's experienced? Well, I'll tell you, he's seen, he's tasted something more potent than the animosity of the white man against the black, namely the love of God for sinners in Christ. did something in his heart, does something in ours, changes the way we approach even our enemies. Now I'm not saying don't protest. I'm not saying don't stand in the gap for the marginalized and the oppressed. <laughs> in fact, I've been saying exactly the opposite in many ways. But what I am saying is, is this, in all your concern for God-honoring ideals don't let your soul slip and slide towards devilish sentiments and means. Did you hear that? The cause may be right, but the way may be wrong. To quote Martin Luther King again, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can can do that and he's just channeling what he learned from his bible as paul says romans 12 21 do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good draw things to a close now and i obviously didn't leave myself any time and i, I knew that i just wanted to make one final comment on the idea of chapter four consummation and this really brings us back full circle to the text that I read at the beginning, Revelation 5, 1 through 10, where what we see there, John is kind of given this vision, really, uh, regarding 
where God is taking the world, where Jesus is taking history. And what we see is that by his blood, he's redeemed a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And there's just one implication that I wanted to bring out. One thing I'd say to live in step with that as the end of the story for us, or maybe the beginning, depending on your perspective. With that as the end, that God is going to be driving the world towards, what's one way we could live and step with it? Well, I'll tell you. It's that we would not lose hope. If we saw that, if we understood that that's where God is taking things in Christ, we would not lose hope. Because I'll tell you, you may look out and you go, my goodness, is this racial tension thing ever going to, to heal? We keep thinking we're getting somewhere and then maybe we're not. And it just seems like we're going in circles or maybe going backwards. And the longer it takes, the more hardened it seems we're getting and it's hard. And you may be prone to go, gosh, is there any hope for peace, for reconciliation, for human rights and, and, and equality and justice? Or is that just a pipe dream? But what we see in Revelation 5, 1 through 10 is that God would say, no, 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 there is hope, more than hope. It's firm, it's fixed. You see, what God is showing uh, John here is not just kind of, he's not just projecting kind of wishful thoughts, okay? This is not God showing John what he hopes may come in the future someday. This is God showing John what will come to pass in Christ. And what that means is, is man, you may feel like you are just tossed to and fro and turned around and you're caught up in the narratives run by the nightly news that seems like everything is falling apart, but you are in a bigger story. And God is taking it to a good and glorious end where people from every tribe, tongue, nation will be gathered together around the Lamb, redeemed in Him, brought back, reconciled with God and with each other. It's going to happen. That's the end. That's where this is going. And that's why we do not lose hope, but instead we roll up our sleeves and we get to work. We get to work. Let me pray. God, I am so grateful that I live, breathe, and move in the world of the Bible. That the Bible presents reality as it really is and make sense of all the stuff that turns us around and gets us confused. And you orient us, Lord, and you show us how we can live. You show us how we can love. You show us where this is going. God, we thank you for the gift of revelation. We thank you for the gift of salvation. We thank you for the gift of getting to partner with you in your mission reaching people with the gospel and working for the common good. God, would you help us as a church to do that now? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.